information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. Asexual, just like all the other sexual orientations, is a label that you put on yourself, right? So nobody can ever give you this label. And I think that's very important because I have clients come in a lot and they'll say to me, well, maybe I'm just asexual. Could you just tell me if I'm asexual or not? And I have to say like, well, no, I couldn't tell you if you're gay or bi or straight, right? So I can't, I can't do that for you. This is a label that you get to claim for yourself. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Erin Everett. All right, so welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett, nurse practitioner. And today we're going to be having on our show Miss Tally Boots, who is local to Atlanta and had moved from Austin, but she is actually one of the most fierce therapists and mental health care providers that I refer to. Tally is well-versed in uh, sexual therapy, but also works with non-traditional couples and LGBTQ care and all other types of specialties. So, Tally, why don't you go and say hi? Hey, guys. Thank you for that awesome introduction. Um, (laughs) Could you go ahead and tell us your preferred pronouns before we get started? Of course. My name is Tally Boots, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Excellent. Thank you. And so I know I touched on some of your... Um, specialties, but did you want to go into a little bit more detail about what all that means for listeners? Yeah, so I'm an LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor, um, and I'm licensed in the state of Georgia and Texas. Um, I'm also a member of WPATH and ASECT, which is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So that's those are the main organizations that I um, am a part of, um, but I've been in private practice now since 2013. Yay! That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Good I love you. it. Yeah, I'm sure having a lot more control and being able to see the patients you want to see and really mm-hmm. increase access to care is amazing. Exactly. Yeah, um, I like to call my own shots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you moved from Texas and now here in Atlanta. Do you mind going over like a little bit of your personal background? Yeah. So I'm from Austin, Texas. Um, I lived there until I was about 20. And then I moved to Colorado, actually, for 10 years and oh. lived in Boulder. Um, and that's where I got all of my schooling and began um, my licensure hours in Colorado. And then I moved back to Texas and became licensed and started my practice there in Austin and then happened to move out here in Atlanta and started my second location out here in Atlanta. And now I see my Texas clients online and my Atlanta clients in person and online. I think that's so awesome that you can still, uh, you know, have your clients do video sessions and online sessions because that is so mm-hmm. helpful for so many people who feel like they can't make it into your office. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really hard uh, when we decided to move up here to Atlanta. I was 
I was very sad about all my Texas clients. I didn't want to leave them. So being able to offer them that opportunity to come with me virtually was mm-hmm. really great. Otherwise, I would have never thought of doing online therapy, but it really just kind of opened up my eyes to that. Um, and it's very helpful. Um, I'm able to work with people and their sexual um disorders and experiences via the internet, which can be very helpful on your own couch in your own house where you feel nice and safe. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's Um, actually one of the selling points I have for patients who are hesitant to establish a relationship mm -hmm. with a mental health care provider. And when I'm talking about you and, you know, a couple of others, being able to offer that service makes them Mm -hmm. a lot more comfortable, especially if they're also battling with like social anxiety. Oh, yes, for sure. It it is very nice to be able to do a video session from your own bed or your couch. What's one little fun fact about you or, you know, something that maybe a lot of people don't know about you? Okay, uh, I was thinking about that. And I think I finally actually had a good answer because most of the time I don't prepare for this (laughs) question. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Growing up, I used to ride Arabian horses um, on a national level. I did that. Yeah, I did that for like 10 plus years. And I just recently unpacked some of my medals and I don't know what to do with them. I don't know. (laughs) But (laughs) (laughs) it felt like another lifetime ago. Yeah. Yeah, this is super fun fact. Well, cool. So, you know, we kind of touched on your professional background a little bit and like your training and education, but what Mm -hmm. was it that drew you to this community with the subspecialty in like sexual therapy or the main specialty really, I guess? Right. Well, I finally, it felt like in undergrad, it took me forever to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I finally figured out that there was a thing called a sex therapist. So once I learned that you could get paid to talk to people about their sex lives and help heal their sexual lives, um, I started doing all the research involved in that and got um, wrapped up in the American Association of Sex Ed- Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within that, there is specialty training um, to work with transgender people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I don't know, it's just right in grad school. Um, back then, it was gender identity disorder. Um, and I had a really big issue with that. And that was one of my... Um, Mm-hmm. grad school projects um, was talking about how that didn't need to be in the DSM. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't understand what was, what was going on. And I was right. brand new and I felt like this was obvious to me. So why wasn't this obvious to everybody? Else. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So when I was working at the mental health center of Boulder, um, everybody knew that I was getting my training in sex therapy. So I got all of the clients um who had any sort of sexual um, topic to go over along with the trans clients. So not only was it a passion in grad school, it just kind of fell into my lap when I started doing community work. Uh Um, And so I was able to get guidance uh, through supervisors when I was getting my licensure. And then when I went into private practice, it was something I knew I needed to find a uh, supervisor and continue training um, to be able to work with the trans community. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I'm so glad that you were able to land into that niche. And I recall thinking the exact same thing when I, um, I have a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking the same thing when we're going over the DSM about the gender identity dysphoria code and thinking, mm-hmm. what the hell? Why are we even talking about this? Like it's a um, disease process, you know? Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. 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 And I, I thought the same thing too, because I mean, in my simplistic, you know, graduate school mind, I didn't know much at the time, but I was like, I don't understand. The only treatment here is to transition. Oh, right. <laughs> so why is this a disorder? And it's it a disorder because any, of our social yeah. construct, not because mm-hmm. of anything else, you know, because society right. uh, basically dictates the way that we're supposed to present based on what we're mm-hmm. assigned at birth. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it mm-hmm. seemed very archaic and um, non-progressive. So hopefully, yeah. um, even though we're making slow progress on that front, you know, one day it won't even be included. They're actually talking about making um, with ICD-11, which is the medical mm-hmm. diagnosis codes, mm-hmm. um, updating it to just be uh, non-binary or uh, non-conforming. But non-binary would be even better. Right. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Yes. Oh. Yes. So, well, with all that in mind, that would be a nice segue into the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about today, which would okay. be... You know, some of our listeners are well-versed in the community and the terms that we talk about, but there are others mm-hmm. who are allies who are tuning in or may identify to a different um, in a different part of the community who aren't that familiar with gender identity. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain to them kind of the main differences between gender identity versus sexual orientation versus assigned sex at birth and what that kind of all means for people. Yeah. Okay. I would love to. First, I want to plug an awesome graphic called the gender unicorn. Um, Yeah. I use this a lot when I'm teaching my clients and their family Mm -hmm. um, about the differences between gender identity, expression, sex assigned at birth, um, who you're physically attracted to and who you're emotionally attracted to. So just Google the gender unicorn. Yeah. I love it. So sex assigned at birth is what the doctor does when you're born and looks at your external genitalia and assigns you a sex, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then sexual orientation is who you're attracted to, right? So I feel like a really easy way to remember this is sex assigned at birth is who you're going home as and Mm -hmm. sexual orientation is who you want to take home with you. (laughs) Oh, yes. So our gender identity is our own conception of our gender. So this happens like if you can think about it in your in your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like in your soul. So wherever you find your soul in the body. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but it's your mind talking. Right. And then your gender expression is how you look like on the outside. So that's how you're expressing yourself for others. Um, so that might be like one day you might be more feminine or one day you might dress more masculine or you might dress um, gender nonconforming one day. Um, so that the that one is is how others basically see you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we already went over sex assigned at birth. Usually it's female, male or intersex. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's who you're physically attracted to. So that might be um, what people consider sexually attracted to or your sexual orientation. Um, And then that might be different than who you're emotionally attracted to. Um, That's kind of emotional and romantic connection is is a little bit more complicated. And that definition is is, um, more wide, but it's it's like, you know, what you feel like in your heart instead of what you feel like from your genitals. <laughs> That's super interesting because, you know, I don't think a lot of people talk about that and how they those two might not communicate well together. You know, like mm-hmm. meaning, you know, you might actually get the tinglys for someone different than who you actually would sit down or go on a, 
a trip with and share all your most personal details with and be more inclined to do that with, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that's really cool. Yeah. And what I love about what I do is I work with a lot of non-traditional couples mm-hmm. and the, the wonderful thing about open couples and poly couples and the swinging community is that they've kind of figured this out that they can be romantic and emotionally connected to some people and it might have nothing to do with their sexual or physical connection to somebody else Mm -hmm. um, so that you can have more than one person to fit all those different uh, places within your life. Right. Yeah. Cause I often get asked by people who are, who don't identify as poly or participate in that way of life that, well, how do they do that? How are they not jealous? And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm like, well, that's part of the reason why you're not a part of the poly community, because it doesn't work for you, but this works for them. And that's awesome, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, that's an interesting concept, too, you know, Um, and that really does help highlight the difference between um, sexual attraction and emotional attraction as well, and how those Mm -hmm. two could be totally compartmentalized. Right, right. And also being part of those communities doesn't mean you're not going to have jealousy. Mm -hmm. It's just you're expected to talk about that jealousy and you're expected to work that through Mm -hmm. and and claim your own jealousy as you as yours right and not as what your partner is doing to you Mm -hmm. yeah that's an interesting way to look at that oh that was so therapeutic (laughs) (laughs) um well that actually is really a great summary i think of all the different ones and I, i looked up the gender Unicorn, and I do think my listeners need to go and uh, look at that because that is awesome, um, and it's a great way to actually visualize what you just explained. So, cool, yeah, um, I love it. Yeah, it's great. I might actually have to print some of those and put them in my exam rooms. <laughs> Ooh, smart, smart. Yeah, I like to keep a, a bunch of them to just hand out to people. Yeah, I think it's really great. Well, that also um, is interesting and brings me kind of to my next thing that I wanted to to explain because I have a lot of. Epi- a lot of patients that identify as asexual and why, mm-hmm. while I know what all this means and I'm obviously not as well versed as you, but I do am familiar with it. A lot of people don't know what that means and often need help in finding other ways to express love and show intimacy. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could kind of summarize and explain what asexuality means and how people who identify as asexual might give and receive love. Right. Okay. So asexual, just like all the other sexual orientations, is a label that you put on yourself, right? So nobody can ever give you this label. And I think that's very important because I have Mm -hmm. clients come in a lot and they'll say to me, well, maybe I'm just asexual. Could you just tell me if I'm asexual or not? And I have to say like, well, no, I couldn't tell you if you're gay or bi or straight, Mm -hmm. right? So I can't, I can't do that for you. This is a label that you get to claim for yourself. But it it can get asexuality basically means that you do not have the desire to be sexual with anybody. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit different than than your libido. So your libido is almost like the drive to have a sexual release or response. So you might be asexual and still have a libido to deal with, mm-hmm. but. I've heard asexuals describe that more as like a something they have to do, like a job they have to do, like a checklist they have to do. It's not as pleasurable as somebody who might be sexual. 
Mm -hmm. um, that they see that as something they want to either do by themselves and they're having a great time, they're looking forward to it, or with others. Mm -hmm. Um, So asexual people are are looking at their libido as more of a a sexual release, but not something they want to connect with others around. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, because basically what you're saying is uh, someone who's sexual but may not want to be sexual with other people still might really look forward to um, private intimacy mm-hmm. sessions or masturbation and you know um mm-hmm. but someone who's asexual might just do that climax just as a release so they can move on about their day correct yeah yes cool yeah. yeah i think that's a really good explanation so when you're talking to these patients um do you notice that they have a lot of uh shame or guilt about this or is it something that it's just kind of that they struggle with to get other people to understand mm. i i do think everybody's an individual um i have seen plenty of asexuals who claim this very proudly and and they have worked through their own internalized shame around it Mm -hmm. um but yeah you could romantically fall in love with somebody who's sexual and for example say that person wants to be in a monogamous relationship then that could create a lot of problems for the asexual person Mm -hmm. But usually I find that my asexual people get into non-monogamous relationships so that their partner, if they have a partner who's sexual, has an outlet for that. It just might not be them, right? And so asexuals could be romantically or emotionally attracted to people. They might like to cuddle. They -hmm. might like to spoon. They might like massages. There's a lot of body touch that can happen that's not, you know, sexually based. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of asexuality, I guess all these topics kind of meld together a little bit because they're a little bit more uncomfortable and may create barriers for people to feel like they have a healthy sex life. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the other things would be uh, genital dysphoria. And I know that this is like, you know, when people have gender dysphoria, they're they're not able to go through their um, transition yet and they're already having internal conflict because Mm -hmm. they aren't living their true selves yet. Um, This is also lumped into there. But those that are... The, for the most part that they can live their true selves they're passing but they still have sexual desire but mm-hmm. have a lot of genital dysphoria I'm sure you run into this a lot with your clients and try and help them to have like creative mm-hmm. ways to have sex and you know um, reach comfort around that could you talk on that a little bit for us yeah yeah so that is a added complication right that you want to be sexual Um, but you're having a lot of genital dysphoria, which might mean that you do not identify with the genitals that you have there. Um, And those genitals might be talking to you and you're wanting to express in a sexual way. So how do you do that? And I think it's very helpful for you and your partner to have your labels, your genital labels, correct. So how you want to refer to your genitals need to be understood by your partner so that they can be talked about in the way that feels good for you. Um, There are a lot of toys out there that can really help. Um, I always say that a vibrator speaks louder than the mind. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's a good addition in anybody's bedroom. Um, so sex toys can be very helpful to kind of keep the focus off just your genitals, right? Mm-hmm. So they can add um, some some newness to what's going on in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that you're talking to your partner about what you want, 
what's expected, what's okay, what's not okay. And having these conversations outside of the bedroom, don't wait till you're about to be sexual to be like, oh, maybe I should talk about this. Right. Talk about this, you know, when you're having a glass of wine before you ever head up to the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, So that way you're not on the spot because oftentimes when we're in the sheets, we say things probably about 20 times in our head before we actually start to say that out loud to our partner. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't want to do that when, when it's um, wrapped up in your genital um, uh, dysphoria concerns also. Right. Right. Cause it's going to make the next, the next time even more uncomfortable if you've had a not so pleasant experience because you haven't been able to express your needs properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you mentioned names for genitals. So outside of obviously the anatomical names, what are some more like gender diverse names that people may want to use in case they're having a hard time with that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it can be as colorful as you want it to be. Yeah. Um, but you can say, um, you, some people say my, my clit, some people say my penis, right? And so mm-hmm. literally referring to your genitals as the genitals you want them to be, um, mm-hmm. instead of perhaps what the doctor would have named it. Yeah. But if you, you know, there's so many terms online, uh, mm-hmm. you can Google all sorts of different terms online, but using um, perhaps for a trans man chest instead of, you know, any other, other mm-hmm. things that you might have referred to their top as mm-hmm. um, and then vice versa, making sure for a trans woman, you're you're labeling them if they like the word tits or breasts. Because I think, too, when I ask patients, like, how would you like me to refer to it? They don't really know sometimes because no one's ever asked them that. It's just in their head they ignore the subject or they may not even be sexually active yet, so they haven't had to verbalize it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having those terms in my toolkit helps my patients as well. Oh, I know. And I love that. And honestly, as a... As a therapist, I try to not assume anybody's labels for mm-hmm. for their body parts. So I always, um, either if I have to ask, I'll ask. If not, I'll just wait for um, my client to refer to their genitals how they want to, and then I'll mirror that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, yes, I've heard many different um, terminologies um, for their genitals. And I think it's wonderful that we have so many different ways of of labeling our body parts in the way in which we want to. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe, then we can all be happy and continue to listen listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. Is there anything you wanted to add in on that or anything that you feel like our listeners should know or things that they should be asking their providers for? We also have to remember that trans men have to still get gynecological exams Mm -hmm. and that's that can be very uncomfortable for a man to be sitting in the waiting room with a a bunch of cis women just sitting around. Mm -hmm. Um, So having a provider like yourself 
I've referred many of my clients, perhaps they're not even coming to you for hormones, but they have to come to you for just um, what I say, a normal doctor's visit. Mm-hmm. And I love that you can provide that service. So it's not a traditional gy- gynecological office mm-hmm. um, where they're sitting around with cis women and probably a lot of pregnant cis women, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And when I have, when, it, when something presents to my office, like a medical issue that I'm not equipped to manage, whether it's because of uh, lacking specialty knowledge or like equipment or tools, um, I do have a lot of, um, I have two in particular that are really great uh, gynecologists that will actually provide really affirming care. And actually one of their offices will see a lot of same sex and non-traditional couples for fertility treatments. So often Mm -hmm. the waiting area is not so scary because there's cis men sitting there and people don't even know why you're sitting in that gynecological office because you could be there to get, you know, your sperm tested. You could be there just to consult with your partner. You could be, you know, for any number Mm -hmm. of reasons. So it's a little, and I remind my patients that, and that's Dr. Betsy Collins with Emory. Um, But their office has a lot of different people sitting in the waiting area. So it's a little bit more stealth than if you're going to a traditional GYN office. I love that. That's awesome. Yes. That's a good resource to have. Yes. And actually it's so uh, interesting because that you brought that up and this is a little bit off topic, but, um, and I'm actually going to have a little session on this another time, but, um, I get this journal. It's the journal of, uh, for nurse practitioners and it has a lot of evidence-based literature in there and articles Mm-hmm. And one of the articles that it presented was uh, gender affirmation in adult primary care. And one of the things that I thought was such a good resource in there were for providers who might not actually be um, providing gender affirming care right now, but want to, or don't know how mm-hmm. to meet the needs of their clients. It actually went through on how to give a sensitive speculum exam. I think that is so important <sighs> for anybody oh, too, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we, get, we get a little bit hung up on, not hung up on, but rightfully so we should be hung up on it, but on the gender diverse community, but also what about cis women who have undergone like sexual trauma or just in general, are really uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that area of their body. Um, yeah. so I think everybody needs to know how to give a sensitive speculum exam. I love that. I would love a copy of that. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to figure out a way to uh, send it over to you. So yeah, in the, in the sex therapy world that I also work in, I work with a lot of women who experience um, pain with intercourse. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge concern is that the majority of the gynecologists out there, um, they're just so used to giving those exams. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much of their training is actually focusing or talking to them or cluing them in that this is this can be very very stressful and painful for people and Mm -hmm. how to i don't know maybe ask a couple questions where you get somebody naked from the bottom half oh for real yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and not only that like ditch the stirrups for the love of god oh i know this is completely unnecessary but there's actually you know and this is where nurse practitioners and advanced practice rns come in because a lot of the certified nurse midwives who are providing these services are doing these very sensitive exams where people will sit frog legged and not in stirrups and, you know, um, actually letting people do their own cervical brush because I have to find the study, <sighs> but there are, there is data to support that people with cervixes can actually get enough cervical, um, cells with their own brush more than often the provider. So, and then when it comes back abnormal, yeah, the provider may have to visualize the cervix, but if it was a normal exam, you know, I mean, you have to do risk versus benefit. If it means that the patient will actually come in and get some type of screening, you might have to do it modified, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So wow, I love that. Yes, I mean we could talk I for days that. just on that. So know. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, that's, there's some good stuff, and, and perhaps we should. Um, you know, address that in another subject, uh, in another podcast is talking about, you know, pelvic mm-hmm. discomfort for, um, cis or even, uh, trans, uh, men. Well, and yeah, and that's what I was going to bring up that it is very important since trans men are, you know, um, taking testosterone, thus their estrogen gets blocked that there, mm-hmm. there can be vaginal atrophy that's happening. And so that would make pap smears extremely painful and mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Um, so all those things really need to be considered. Not only is it, is it, uh, exam that, you know, feels uncomfortable on many sort of emotional levels, but also on the physical levels. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of providers aren't aware, but for trans men, you know, um, it's often offered to postmenopausal cis females, the topical estrace creams, but I have a lot of trans men taking those topical estrace creams. It will not mm. feminize. It'll just help that, uh, the vaginal tissue so they don't have as much pain. They have less urinary incontinence and their pH is a little bit more restored so that it don't get chronic BV and yeast. So it's really, mm. really helpful. That's great. That's yeah. great. What about uh, cycling them on progesterone? Yes, um, I do have patients on progesterone. Um, a lot of them don't like to cycle it um, just because yeah. of the, you know, the mood shift. But uh-huh. I often recommend either the progesterone only daily low dose pill um, mm. or the IUD. Um, the nice thing about the IUD is they could go for an exam, have it placed, mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. you know, it's working for contraceptives. It's working for that whole area. But mm-hmm. also, um, you know, then they don't have to necessarily go back and get another exam um, unless they're having a medical issue, you know, for their three to five year screening time. Whereas um, if I'm prescribing the progesterone only pill, I'm not requiring a pelvic exam every year, but a lot of GYNs do. Yeah, yeah. And so the progesterone does a good job of not interacting with the testosterone. For so many years, that was ignored. And Mm -hmm. so for trans men who weren't able to go get a hysterectomy, there was a lot of damage happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, and and not just that. A lot of people think that once the... um, the period, the menstrual period stops that they can't get pregnant. And I, I play Mythbusters all the time with that. I'm like, absolutely not. You can still be ovulating without a cycle. And so if you're going to be using that organ and having um, a biological penis uh, that you have to protect against pregnancy. And if you don't want to think about that, um, then taking a daily pill or doing an IUD is perfect, you know, because mm-hmm. they don't have to necessarily... Um, and and I'm not even talking about traditional oral contraceptives with estrogen in it. I mean just the progesterone only. Although you can yeah. do traditional oral contraceptives. As long as we get that testosterone high enough, they're still going to masculinize. That's great. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you do a lot of education around that IUDs mm-hmm. are kind of painful to go into. Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and if depending you're experiencing on the transition, down there. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and and not for everyone at all. Um, And then you can also do the progesterone-only implant in the arm. But if someone's Mm. just starting their transition, Mm -hmm. um, and so their biological female hormones are still very high, that's usually Mm. when I'll mention the IUD, because that's typically when they'll have the less pain with insertion. Um, But if they've been on testosterone for a really long time, or even a couple of years, and they've already experienced a significant amount of atrophy, it's probably not the best option for them at that point. Okay. Uh, Just given pain. I mean, they can still do it, but just given discomfort and uh, whatnot, it would definitely need a proper bimanual exam and maybe even an ultrasound to assess for atrophy before 
uh, going into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the one in the arm is a better choice. Yep. At that point. Yep. Or the, yeah. or the daily pill. Well, since we were talking about um, genital dysphoria and creative ways to have intimacy and sex, one of the other topics that come up a lot just in my exams, and I I would say that um, the majority of my patients don't go on to have gender reassignment surgery or vaginoplasty, metatoidoplasty, or phalloplasty, for those of you wondering Mm -hmm. what that means. But the ones that do, you know, sometimes run into issues having... Uh, sex afterwards um, and maybe it's not necessarily issues like because the, uh, the new organs aren't functioning but it's just like okay so now I have this new organ what do I do with it you know like mm-hmm. I'm not I have to build a new relationship I actually had um, uh, you know I've had trans women in the past go on for vaginoplasty and say okay well now that I have the vagina I'm, I'm so excited about it I just feel like it's I need to look at it every day and get to know it because it's this new part of me that I'm just not familiar with. And it feels very strange not to have an erection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you run into that? And like, what are some tips or uh, things that you could give listeners or just some insight and information on that? Yeah. Okay. So first I, I agree with you. The majority of my practice, people don't end up getting bottom surgery mm-hmm. for whatever their reasons are. I'm, I'm sure the majority of the reasons are money. But there are other people who don't have gender dysphoria and are trans. And so they, they don't want the surgery and that's, that's their, um, that's their experience also. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thank you for highlighting that because that's super important. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, and I think that that used to be the case that, sorry to get off on a tangent again, that used to be the case that, that people wouldn't prescribe hormones even unless somebody said that they had genital dysphoria also, um, and that's that's not the case anymore. And that's that's really lovely that it's starting to move towards everybody is different. Um, mm-hmm. And let's just listen to the person. But what is um, very, very important after post-surgery is to hook up with a pelvic floor physical therapist who is specialized with trans people. Uh, we happen to have somebody here in Atlanta. His name is Lance Frank. Um, and I, I think he's at Active Core right now. That's what his LinkedIn yeah, page is. Uh, I know Lance. Yeah. He's wonderful. Oh, he's a wonderful he's resource. So, yes, he's so great because he he's going to help you get to know your new body um, very well. And you're right. there. It, it's a learning curve. It's brand new. It's not like you grew up with this and, and mm-hmm. understand it completely, right? So you have to think that you have to go through an exploration stage. Um, so you might be having to use dilators, you might be having to use pumps, there's, there's a lot of learning curve to go along with it. And then not only that, there might be complications of you might not have a partner, and then how do you begin dating um, mm-hmm. in this new world with this new um, body part. And um, all of that, you just have to take slowly and understand it for yourself before you introduce anybody else into the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And then seeing somebody like a physical therapist to make sure that you're healing correctly, that the scars are working themselves out because just because you have a scar there doesn't mean you can't work that scar out because you can do a lot of like scar rehabilitation and muscle rehabilitation through pelvic floor physical therapy. Mm -hmm. And, And what do you mean when you say work that scar out? 
Oh, well, that's a good question. It depends on where it is. But if it's internal, you might be working it out with a dilator um, mm-hmm. and kind of getting the sensitivity of the scar to go away so it's not so triggering or painful mm-hmm. um, and then you know getting the right creams and lubes um, and um, tools to help you learn your new body um, and then incorporating sex toys again with your new body um, can be very helpful mm-hmm. a lot of people like vibrators um, or you know dildos or pocket pussies mm-hmm. you know there's all sorts of fun things yeah, that's awesome. And a lot of a lot of patients wonder too if they're going to be able to climax after surgery, um, and I, you know, especially after vaginoplasty because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the glands penis is gone, and so they wonder, you know, am I going to be able to use my new clitoris? Like, and mm-hmm. I would have to say, in my experience with my patients who have uh, undergone surgery, that yeah, after a time, they definitely can. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent guarantee, but the majority of people do get full sexual function. Um, I don't have right. a lot of patients who have had phalloplasty. Um, do you have more experience with that and what to expect mm. post-surgically? Yeah. Unfortunately, phalloplasty is just not up to par with many of my client's standards. They are waiting for it to get better. So the majority of my clients who might even be able to afford it are just choosing not to do it yet because the technology is just not there yet right the knowledge is just not there that yet so i can't answer that Mm -hmm. um but i i would you know this is the sex therapist in me i i would like to expand the definition of sexual pleasure to be outside of an orgasm Mm -hmm. i think that's really important to not just define sex as um you know active lubrication erection orgasms simultaneously please Mm -hmm. um because that's not realistic. And if we put our definition that close, then we're just, we're just going to fail when it get, doesn't get reached. So instead, looking at your sexual experience as pleasure and intimate connection that you have either by yourself or with another, um, that, you know, it's this like spiritual, emotional, mental, <laughs> physical mm-hmm. connection you have with another person. And that sense of connection is the goal instead of orgasm. Because I got to tell you that everybody explains um, and defines orgasm differently. Some people have throbbing sensations. Some people don't have throbbing sensations. Some people have um, fluids that happen and some people don't have fluids that happen. So it's really important to understand that that sense of pleasure is the most important part. So that way you don't feel that perhaps, you know, if you can't get the quote unquote orgasm, you used to be able to get, um, after your surgery, you don't feel like it's a failure. Instead, you're connecting to a different level of pleasure than, you know, what you think of an orgasm to be. Mm-hmm. Wow. You just blew my mind. Cause that is so true. You know, um, expanding that definition that's going to be so helpful to so many people because you know not a lot of people think about sex like that you know mm-hmm. they might think about the emotions behind sex but the actual physical act and the desired outcome i think for a lot of people are the traditional like you said fluids climax mm-hmm. <laughs> often simultaneously let's do this but yeah expanding yeah. that definition i think is really helpful especially even if we're not talking about having uh surgery or not but anybody who's have a, has a difficult relationship with sexual intimacy will be- benefit mm-hmm. from that expanded right. definition yeah well the pressure that we put on ourselves to have an orgasm 
is like counterintuitive to actually connecting to our sexual selves and our sexual experience. So it's not very helpful. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I'm sure it makes the task even more challenging. Correct. Yeah. yeah. We've got to be in our bodies, <laughs> not in our head. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that was a really helpful discussion on, um, you know, sex post-surgery. Thank Tally for coming on today and giving us all that information. That's good, solid information. But if there's something that we touched on that you have additional questions about or you need clarification on, please feel free to reach out to either myself at Erin at exclusively inclusive podcast.com or you can reach Tally at which is the best email to reach you at Tally. Yeah, it's Tally T A L I at sex therapy of Atlanta.com. And that's my website too, sextherapyofatlanta.com. Or you can mm-hmm. reach her on Instagram, which is Tally Boots LPC. And Tally, you're accepting new patients, right? I am. Yep, Excellent. I am. And mm-hmm. is there any other information about your practice that you want people to know, whether you hold group therapy sessions or other services? Yeah, I do. Actually, I have three, well, two groups. I have a When Sex Hurts group that meets um, on Thursday evenings. And then we also have a trans group that meets every Wednesday evening. And that's an open, ongoing group um, of all genders. So anybody on the spectrum um, can come to the trans group. And then also in February, I've got a workshop for parents. Um, It's... um, basically about what happens to our sex life after we have kids. So this uh, workshop is going to be two hours long and, you know, everybody's encouraged to come and babies in arms are allowed. But if they're walking around, we'd like you to find a sitter, please. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Cause that pertains yeah. to everybody. Um, for any, sure. Any parents. So that's awesome. Well, cool. Thank you again so much. And I oh, look forward to having you back on so we can cover other topics like kink And uh, anything else that's hot off the press, we can address too. Wow, what a great show that was with Tally. Um, I'm so thankful that she had the time to come on and talk with us about these subjects because they're so important. And I, you know, I think, you know, we also limited how much we spoke about it because so much more could be said. And we'll continue to address these subjects. But um, if anybody feels like, again, we didn't touch in on something that they have a question about, please feel free to reach out. Um, and if you're feeling isolated or alone about your gender uh, identity or sexual orientation, just know that there's people out there like myself and Tally who are ready and willing to help and please feel free to reach out to either of us remember stay fierce love everybody and live your truth thanks again bye-bye